that we covered last week. We did say that the key to this book is not a hard one to find. It is the insatiable love of God for his own. But it is not the same as the message, for instance, of the little book, The Song of Solomon, which speaks to us of mutual love, just mutual love. Here we have a quality of love expressed, a kind of love expressed, which we might call forgiving or redeeming or persevering love when someone proves to be unbelievably difficult and even loveless. In the Song of Solomon, uh, the bride of the bridegroom actually loved him. And although she had times when she grew a little contented and self-satisfied and decided she could have a time uh, without him and had to be taught some rather deep and thoroughgoing lessons, there nevertheless there was a mutual love. And it was because of that love in her that the Lord was able to deal with her and bring her in the end into that absolute union at the end of that book where everything is we and ours. Which is so different from the beginning of the book where it is mine and his. But this book reveals love in a different way. It reveals the love of God when he comes up against a lovelessness in his own. And more than a lovelessness, but something akin to harlotry in his own. Not just a, an absence of love, but a love for other things opposed to God. Uh, a, a desiring love for anything else than the Lord. Now this little book reveals to us the reaction of God when he comes up against that kind of spirit in his own how he deals with it, what he does with it. And that's why, the, as we have said, the heart of Hosea's message is in this little word that we translate mercy or loving kindness or steadfast love. You see, the Lord looks upon his own and himself as having been betrothed. There is a troth that's been made. And the Lord is going to keep that he has made. I feel somehow, although it would be misunderstood in many quarters, that the best way we could perhaps translate this little word is committed love. It is the kind of love which has committed itself to someone else forever. And although it may at times have to stand back and allow judgment to take its course and allow them to reap what they've sown, it nevertheless has so committed itself to that one that in the end it will rescue them <laughs> and in the end will lead them back into a place of fullness such as they really never had before, a place of stability that they never had before. Now this is really what the Lord is dealing with in this little book and it is this little word mercy, a word that in some ways has lost some of the beauty of its meaning in our 20th century. It has somehow got a, an atmosphere now of condescension and uh, someone very superior uh, coming down to someone very inferior. 
And although there's a lot of truth in the thought of mercy, the scripture, uh, the scriptural word, the Hebrew word mercy, means much more than that. It is the love of someone for us in such a way that they find a capacity to be patient with us and a capacity to suffer a long time in order, finally, to completely win us. That's mercy. The mercy of the Lord, which waits such a long, long time when we're difficult and contradictory and gainsaying and rebellious and loveless and many other things. It is the mercy of the Lord which patiently endures insults and injury from the one that it loves until finally it has brought that one through a period of such self-revelation as they are only too ready to come to a new place and to understand what the mercy of the Lord really is. You see, many people talk glibly, cheaply and easily about the Lord when we, when we first come to him. We talk as if he's an ogre, as if somehow or other he's out to destroy every little bit of human happiness that's left to us. As if, if, he, if, he, if it's possible, he will cut across our path just to destroy our happiness, to try and put limitation in our way and restriction in our way. And we miss the whole point. If there is any limitation, if there is restriction, and there is, it is for one reason that we may be saved from unhappiness, that we may, in the end, be saved from the terrible vacuum of ourselves. Now, that's what the mercy of God is, that capacity not to just fling us overboard when we insult him, when we deal roughly with his love, but that capacity to stand back in anguish at times, and listen to it all, and watch it all, until this vile principle of self-centeredness in us has exhausted itself and come to the place where it's broken. Now, the message of this book of Hosea is just along that line. You see, it speaks of God's love toward us and uh, what he wants us to return to him. It, it, uh, it speaks, as it were, of the kind of relationship that God, above everything else, desires to have. Of course, it goes right back to the very beginning of the Bible, in the second chapter of Genesis, when we had the story of the institution of marriage. That institution of marriage was not a thing in itself. It wasn't an end in itself. It was a great picture, a parable, if you like that God instituted at the very beginning to reveal a desire on his own heart for man and himself. In other words, it reveals to us that man supremely, we were not made for each other supremely, but we were made for God supremely. This other is but just the shadow of something far, far greater and far more important, uh, which God desires and wants. Now Hosea reveals that God remains absolutely loyal, absolutely loyal and faithful in love to that relationship and pledge, even when we prove absolutely disloyal and unfaithful. 
This is the thing that I think is the most remarkable facet of God's character, that he can remain so absolutely loyal once he's committed himself. Now, we're not talking about those to whom he has not committed himself, but we're speaking of the fact that when the Lord has committed himself to us, when we've been saved through the grace of God, he has committed himself to us. He remains absolutely faithful, absolutely faithful to that pledge to that relationship, to that covenanting with us. You see, whether we know it or not, when we're saved, we come into the new covenant which is sealed in the blood of Jesus, the eternal covenant. And this covenant is looked on in Scripture often as a marriage vow between the Lord and his own. The moment we take him and he takes us, that moment a union is effected spiritually between God and a human being. And that is the moment when we've entered into a covenant relationship with the Lord. And immediately, immediately, God's love for us, which was a general love and a wonderful love, becomes, if I may use the word, a chesed love, a betrothed love, a love which is committed to an eternal relationship that has come into being at that moment. It changes just from the love of a God for a sinful human being into the love of God for his own beloved. That may seem a little hard for us to get hold of, but you know, we have here, because of this fact, one of the most wonderful pictures of God's love and grace and faithfulness in the Bible. You know, the church, as I said last week, in itself is so utterly worthless. We in ourselves are so utterly worthless and so degraded. When you come to the Lord, you only begin to find out the depth of degradation that we really have come into uh, as human beings. Oh, how degraded and how worthless we are. How unclean and how unlovely. And yet, he has betrothed us to himself. We all have to recognize, whatever we might feel about predestination or free will, whatever we might feel about these great things, one thing we all have to admit, and that is that it seems we look back that the Lord put his hand on us. It seems as if the Lord took hold of us in those first steps and saved us. And he betrothed us, we can only confess, out of sheer love for us. Not because he needs us, and not because we can do him any good, but just because of, of a sheer love for us. And when we are saved, and when we have been betrothed, and we prove to be at times so utterly unfaithful and disloyal to him, it it's a marvel that God should have betrothed us to him when we are, by nature, so inherently unclean and degraded. But the wonder is this, that when God has saved us, and we prove so utterly, so many of us, prove so utterly unfaithful and disloyal to him, then we begin to discover that he is loyal to the truth he made. 
It's one thing to marvel at the fact that we were unclean before we were saved, but it's a, it's a much more wonderful thing to recognize that we've deserved the divorce of God. Not once, but a thousand times since the day we came to know the Lord. If the Lord were to take, not, uh, were to reckon insult and injury and sin, then we would have been divorced. And furthermore, if the Lord were to come down to the level at which we finish the relationship with one another, uh, and the world so often finishes its marriage relationship with one another, my word, there would be a lot of divine divorce. Uh, there would be very, very few of us left in a relationship with the Lord. But you see, the book of Hosea reveals to us the his faithfulness and the, and the tenderness of his love. How he just perseveres until he loves us into perfection. I think that's one of the most wonderful things about the book of Hosea. You see, it is true that we have been so terribly deceived and there's such a lie born in us that when we first come to the Lord, we begin to discover that we have a very warped conception of God. It takes us many, many years before we begin to really recognize God as he is and not God as we see him. To understand God for what God really is and to begin to understand something of the Lord's dealings with us in the light of his character. Oh, what a deep deliverance it takes to get us out of that realm where we think the Lord won't speak to me or the Lord won't have any dealings with me or the Lord's given me up long ago or the Lord's and all the rest of it. Oh, isn't that most of the problems that are in this room? Uh, spiritually, go back to some kind of idea that the Lord is against us or the Lord doesn't really want us or the Lord has discovered us to be so absolutely rotten uh, that he's just given us up as a bad uh, show. No, you see, it takes a very deep work. But the truth is this, that the Lord's faithfulness and tender love is such that he will go on loving us, even in judgment, until he has loved us into perfection. And I think we ought also to note, whilst just reminding ourselves of this, the state that our unfaithfulness leads us into. Everything is so entrancing at the beginning, so pleasurable, so full of prospect. Oh, when Goma left uh, her husband, Hosea, everything was wonderful. This new lover that she had found was a wonderful man. He provided her, she says, with everything she wanted, beautiful clothes and lovely food and a nice home. And he was the most attentive person, evidently, to her. She thought the world of him. Everything was en enchanting. It was beautiful. It was pleasurable. It was just what she'd always desired. And evidently, poor Hosea just didn't match up in her mind uh, to this uh, new uh, lover that had come interview. But the end of Goma was terrible. When her lover had tired of her, he sold her as a chattel. And in the end, she was found in a slave market. And she was so damaged, so emaciated, so badly treated, that she was sold for half price. She didn't even fetch the full price of a slave.
She had learned bitterly and deeply the lesson of what, of where unfaithfulness leads us to. At the beginning, so full of hope, so full of prospect, so pleasurable. But the end of it is to find that we're in the iron-like grip of something, that we're fettered in a way that is terrible. And the thing we loved has become our master and no longer loves us. It loved us when we were equals, but now that we've become its slave, its servant, it's a terrible tyrant, ready to sell us at a moment's notice. The Lord speaks uh, of her being her nakedness, which was a sign of her impoverishment. She wasn't even sold in the slave market, you see, uh, fully clothed. This was a sign of being of very little uh, value at all. Her she had no beauty at all left in her when Hosea finally went and reclaimed her and redeemed her. And I think we also ought to understand how Hosea sees sin, as I mentioned last week. He sees it as adultery and harlotry, spiritually. That's what sin is in the eyes of Hosea, spiritual harlotry, going off with other things other than the Lord, loving things, giving ourselves to those things, yielding ourselves to those other <coughs> things. That's what he sees to be sin. He sees the heart of sin to be an adultery, a spiritual adultery, uh, an unfaithfulness to the love of God. Indeed, he sees sin in its most terrible form to be sin against the love of God. He sees it as God's love for us to be so tremendous that when we slap him, as it were, in the face, when we insult him in that way, to him, that is the worst kind of sin of all. Well, all this, I hope, just makes us realize that, that Hosea had a wonderful message, because the essential uh, message of Hosea was not sin. And it wasn't even uh, unfaithfulness. And it wasn't even the judgment of God upon sin and unfaithfulness. But Hosea's essential message was the mercy of God, the love of God, which perseveres until finally it has completely won us for itself. That's the message of Hosea. It'll put up with anything. But in the end, it will finally win us wholly to itself, so that in the end, we want to be there. Not we've got to be there, but we want to be there. That, I think, is the most wonderful thing of all. And that's why this book is a book for the backslider. Return, the word return, is indeed one of the key words in this little prophecy. A book is filled with uh, the strong warning of where the path of backsliding leads, of the unhappiness of the path of the backslider. And it's filled also with the most anguished appeals from the heart of God not to take that path, not to walk along there, but to trust God at the beginning in spite of the fact that we may not understand what he's doing with us, because it is love that is dealing with us. Most amazing appeals, in this, and the most anguished cry when the one love uh, decides to walk another path. And, of course, the most wonderful thing of all for the backslider in this book is the absolute certainty of divine hope 
that ultimately God's love will triumph in the backslider. Now, it is true that every backslider that I have known, anyway, uh, has lost everything in the far country. I know of no backslider who has not become a wreck, a true backslider. They have become a wreck in every way. But, on the other hand, I have never known anyone die in their backsliding. They have all been brought back. God's love always finally wins. They may come back a wreck. They may come back with nothing whatsoever, but they come back with eternal gain. Because when they do come back, there's such an insatiable longing in them to be back at the side of the Lord, that when they get back, they never ever depart again. From the Lord. So we have some in the company who have spent years in backsliding and then came the time when they longed to be back with the Lord as they'd never longed to be saved in previous years. Longed to be back and couldn't come back until finally they were restored by the love of God. This is a book then for the love, for the, for the backslider. And I think also we ought just to know that the ministry and the man are one. In here we have, we, we have the most remarkable link between the ministry, the prophecy, and the prophet, or the ministry and the man. No one could more fully proclaim this message of love than Hosea. Because, you see, it came out of an experience of it in his own life with his wife. He, he saw in, and understood in his own experience something which he could never have seen and never have understood any other way. And through it was born this glorious message of the mercy and the faithfulness and the love of God. It's a rather somber note, I suppose, but it's a rather wonderful one, you know, when you think of all that's come to us through it, that uh, Hosea was chosen uh, to live this kind of life and to and to experience uh, this unbelievable tragedy in his own personal life, but out of it uh, there came a, a a marriage, if I may say, of his ministry and of himself, so that it's hard to uh, to to divide the man's ministry from the man himself. The man and the ministry are one; they have been born in the depths of suffering. And out of it, there comes a message of hope that is one of the most wonderful and glorious portions of the Old Testament. We can say that Hosea's life, his very life, was a prophetic act full of prophetic significance. His very life. If Hosea had never said much else, he would have been something for us all. That's why he's called the Jeremiah of, his, of the Northern Kingdom. Like Jeremiah, he was himself a prophetic act. He lived it out. And it was filled with prophetic significance. His life is a miniature, if you know what a miniature is, a miniature of God's love and Israel's history. Well, that's the key to this book. The heart of it is the faithful, tender, persevering love of God for his own, whatever they do however much they contradict the relationship, until finally he has won them, wholly, whatever the cost, back to himself. Now, what about the outline of the book? Um, 
we must not overlook the link between Hosea chapters 1 to 3 and Hosea's chapter 4 to 14. It is only this simple twofold division in this book as a major division, but these two uh, portions are intimate, intimately linked together. In one sense, Hosea 1 to 3, which is a personal narrative uh, of the prophet's experience, um, it is an abridgment of the whole book. In other words, if we'd only had the first three chapters of Hosea, we would have got, in kernel form, his whole ministry. It's an abridgment of the whole book. And from chapter 4 to chapter 14, you have only the development of what is actually found already in those first three chapters. One little point I ought to make, it will please some, I have no doubt, um, is there here any ground for, of hope for the Jew? I bring it up particularly because this is the book that is twice mentioned in connection in the New Testament, in connection with the Jew. Uh, is there any hope? Well, I leave it to you. You must read Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11. But you will discover there that Hosea is quoted twice. And I believe that there is more possibility that this particular book speaks to the Jew than any other prophetic book. But we must underline one very simple but important fact. And that is that if there is any hope, the way the book of Hosea is quoted, it proves to us that the hope is in and through Christ. You see, um, the prophet says, uh, you who are not my people shall be called my people. And when it was said, no people, they shall be called sons of the living God. So you must recognize here that there may be in this wonderful prophecy some little picture of God's dealings with the Jew. Uh, not only in the Old Covenant, but in the new. And should there be ever any turning back to the Lord Jesus Christ and recognizing him as their Messiah, it will be but the fulfillment in an even more wonderful way of some of these prophecies. Now let's just look at the outline of this book. I have uh, written up here the outline so that you can copy it down. It's rather uh, a little full there. But that is the outline of the book of Hosea. You will see that there is a twofold, very simple and twofold division. The first three chapters I have headed, as indeed I can't think how else you can head them, uh, the faithfulness of Hosea and the unfaithfulness of Gomer, his wife. And the second uh, division of the book of Hosea from chapter 4 to 14, the faithfulness of the Lord and the unfaithfulness of Israel. Now, if you will take uh, Hosea, we will very swiftly, in the last few moments we have, run through um, this, these chapters. I have subheaded the first section. I hadn't uh, room to put it on the board, but I have sub-headed um, the first section, the experience, training, and instruction of the prophet. This section, these first three chapters, deal really, essentially, in many ways, with the experience, 
the experience, the training, and the instruction of the prophet. Now, it's, it uh, divides very beautifully into three. Chapter one, chapter two, or chapter three. This is one of the cases where with chapter divisions are good. And um, the first section deals with Goma, uh, his wife. The first chapter, um, really. And it deals with his marriage and his family. Who was Goma? Who was Goma? We don't know. What was Goma? Even of that, we cannot be absolutely certain. Why did the word of the Lord come to Hosea and say, go marry a woman of harlotry? Of course, naturally, this whole idea has been repugnant to many Christian scholars. They cannot believe that God could have told a prophet to marry a woman who was already a harlot, who was unchaste, who wasn't a virgin. They feel that this was against the law. So we find a great controversy has raged for many hundreds of years as to whether indeed the Lord said to his prophet, marry an unchaste woman, or whether, firstly, it is an allegory. It's not true at all. The whole thing is a parable. Um, this is the most beautiful way of getting out of it that some Christian scholars have found. They don't feel it was true at all, but a, a, an allegory uh, that was in the prophet's mind in which he sought to teach the people. But there's far too much here. Why, for instance, as in all allegories, every name has a meaning. But it is a strange fact that we have not any meaning whatsoever for the name Goma. It, to all intents and purposes, it's a real name, and we're given uh, her place, Diblim. So that rather militates against that thought. And then again, there are others who said, well, uh, uh, Hosea's looking back, back. It's in retrospect that he said the word of the Lord came to him. In actual fact, he married a very sweet girl who at the time he married her, he had no idea that she was going to turn out like she did turn out. And uh, it was only afterwards that he realized that the word of the Lord first came to him when he married Gomer. That was the beginning of the Lord's ministry for him. Well, there are many, many evangelicals today who, who believe that. But I cannot help but get away from the deep-seated sense of the logical and rational meaning of Hosea, that in actual fact the Lord did tell Hosea to go and marry a woman who in my estimation was probably, although I wouldn't like to say dogmatically she was, one of the cult prostitutes. I have a strong feeling, I shall know one day when we're in heaven, uh, that she was uh, one of the girls who'd been bought from a family to be trained as a priestess, but who probably was still a virgin when uh, 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 Hosea first saw her and first fell in love with her. But whatever happened, he whatever else we might feel, he married her. And this was the beginning of domestic tragedy. Because it is absolutely undoubted that Hosea loved Goma with all his being. It wasn't just that the Lord had told him to do something. He really loved her. And he loved her very deeply and fully in a way that when we look back, we think is wholly undeserved. I think many of us would use some very harsh words and severe words over Goma. Uh, many little thoughts come to mind about her that we could easily write her off as. 
but he loved her. And it's a strange thing that when a person loves another person, in spite of all these terrible things about them, there is that love which somehow cannot let that person go. In this instance, of course, they had these children. It is suggested in the second chapter that he didn't even really know whether the children were his own, at least two of them, of the three. All three had prophetic names. The first was God's souls, which means judgment. God's sowing judgment. God is scattering. The word is the scattering of seed, Jezreel. The second was Loruhama, which means not pitied or uncompassioned. In other words, uh, there's no mercy for her. Now that's interesting, is that no mercy? And the last was a son. The third child was a son, and he was called Lo-Ami. No people. Not my people. These were the three sons. Will you note a progression in judgment? In, pro in, the in the prophetic names, from first just simply a scattering to a withdrawal of mercy until finally a complete separation, not my people at all. These were prophetic names. Now, believe me, I don't think, and the scripture does not suggest that Hosea, up to that point, had begun to realize that his wife was being unfaithful. Perhaps his suspicions had begun to be aroused. But as far as we know, everything was all right. And like so many other prophets, he was told, like Isaiah, to name his children prophetically. God gave them names which symbolized something to the generation. And that was all. Hosea probably thought, I'm going to live like Isaiah. He had a happy life, a happy domestic life. Uh, he had a very difficult ministry, but he had a happy home life. But it was not to be, because, as you know, in this was the making of the prophet. God, through Hosea's marriage to Gomer and the birth of these three children, was beginning to constitute Hosea a prophet. In those early days, we look back, I think, with a certain amount of sympathy and understanding. In those early days, he didn't realize the cloud that was soon to break upon him. But God was already constituting him, developing him, conditioning him to be the man that he was going to be and to be the vessel of the kind of ministry that he had. When you come to the second chapter, you've got the breakup of the marriage and, and a terrible but wonderful chapter as well, this chapter two is. Uh, we have Goma's adultery. She evidently, in the end, uh, goes off suddenly with one of her lovers. She had many lovers, but suddenly there was one who seemed to give her more than perhaps others, who seemed to have more about him than others, and she finally left uh, Goma and uh, left Hosea and left the children. It was the breakup of Hosea's life. We don't know exactly what happened to Hosea, except that in this chapter we get the anguished heartbreak of a man in love. You see, it's not the kind of reaction of a person who's just bitter and sour about someone who's left them in the lurch or done something they shouldn't have done, been unfaithful. This is the anguish of a man who at one moment is angry and the next moment is heartbroken about it. One moment he's angry with her and he says that, well, he'll do this and he'll do that and he'll do the other. But the next moment 
His heart broken, his anguish of spirit comes out in it all. You see, it was the making of the prophet. Hosea didn't know it. But in actual fact, through his tragedy, he was being prepared for the greatest revelation that could have been given to him. In chapter 2, you get uh, uh, warnings of unhappiness. You get warnings of impoverishment. You get warnings of judgment. Hosea already begins, by the Spirit of God, over his own domestic tragedy, to, to speak of the impoverishment that must come to Goma. He says, you know, I gave her all the food, I gave her clothing, and she used it uh, to deceive me, and behind my back to go out with other men, and I didn't know it. He said, I gave her a home, I gave her money, I gave her security, I gave her my love, and she used it all. And behind me, she used it all for another purpose altogether. Out of this comes this cry of, or warning really, of judgment that must come to a person like that. He says what often we say, that person cannot be happy. That person's going to be very, very, very unhappy. And he says this, this way must lead to terrible unhappiness, must do. But perhaps the one most wonderful thing of all in that chapter too is that for the first time there's a note of tenderness. Uh, when it came in, we don't know. But it is that wonderful part where uh, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. And you know, it's a strange thing. You, you look at that word, therefore. Usually we mean, because of so and so and so and so and so and so, therefore will I do so and so. Now, if you read those preceding verses, you would expect for therefore to be judgment. Therefore, I'm going to uh, divorce her. Or I'm going to take action over this. But instead, the therefore introduces the most unbelievably tender uh, passage about love. And the way he's going to deal with her when he, finally he, he meets her again and is able to reclaim her. You see, you've got here the making of the prophet. Hosea had begun to understand his own feelings. In his anger, his righteous anger, his indignation, he saw something of the anger of God's love when it's rebuked and when it's refuted and injured. And then in his heartbreak, he began to understand something of the anguish of God for his own. It was the making of the prophet. When you come to chapter 3, you've got the reconciliation. You know what happened. Goma's pitiful condition. She's in a slave market. She's half naked. Her body's broken. Her looks have gone. She has no money. She's a chattel. A little bit of furniture. And when they come to bargaining about her price, they let her go for half the price. Oh, this... Uh, you can have her for half the price. Uh, she's not much. She, she won't probably live very long. She's not much use for anything, perhaps scrubbing a few pots. A few things like that is all she's any good for, but if you can make use of her, I do half price. Have her. That's what's happened to Goma. And it was there, no one was prepared even evidently to buy her. It was there that Hosea found her. And though, as far as I can see, there was no beauty there, there was nothing that was like the Goma he had loved when she was young. He loved her so much that he bought her. 
He reclaimed her. He redeemed her. He restored her. He reinstated her as his wife. We don't know the end of Goma, but I expect the end was that she spent a time either in tears or in an overwhelming sense of the love of Hosea for her. Because it must have been to her the most amazing thing of all, when at last she got down to the deepest level of degradation she could come, the man she had so wronged and revealed such a lovelessness to her was the man who reclaimed her and reinstated her as his own wife. Well, that's the faithfulness of Hosea and the unfaithfulness of Goma. And it is there that the prophet is made. For you see, it is at that point that the prophet is instructed. You see, when he was told to go and reclaim Goma, the Lord said to him, this is because I, this is the way I love my people. They're just like this. This is exactly what they're going to do. And they're going to go the same way as Goma. But I'm going to love them. And I'm going to love them in such a way that in the end, I'm going to reclaim them. And I'm going to redeem them. And I'm going to restore them. And when I do restore them, they'll never again play the harlot <coughs> for as long as they live. When you come to the next section, uh, the last section, there are four parts of it, and I have summed them up, really, in the um, cry of uh, the, the question that is asked each time. The first section is from chapter 4 and verse 1 to chapter 5 and verse 7, and I have called it the Lord's controversy with Israel. And... Um, it's summed up in this little phrase, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. He's joined to idols, and the word joined is wedded. That's the actual word, it means joined, two people joined together. He's joined to idols, he's wedded to idols, let him alone. It is the character of the fruit of sin that Hosea comes out. This section is to do with the prophecy or the ministry of the prophet, see? Uh, we've got over now the experience and the training and the instruction of the prophet. Now we come to his ministry. Out of his experience comes his ministry. And what, uh, what a ministry it is. First he deals with the Lord's controversy, because he had a controversy with Goma. This is how he felt. Goma is joined to a lover. Leave her alone. It's no good trying to do anything. If I go back and reclaim her for myself, what will be? What will be the end of it? She'll come back bitterly to me. She'll come and she'll stand, as it were, by my side. But she'll be always there, inwardly rebellious, inwardly difficult, because she doesn't want to be with me. Gomer is joined to her lovers. Let her alone. Sin, its character and its fruit. Separation from God is not just because God wants separation or because it's necessary that God should be separate from the sinner, but because there's no other way that the sinner can learn. You see, sin, by its very nature, doesn't want God. It wants the privileges of God's protection and security, but sin in itself does not want God. It doesn't want to be near God. It doesn't want to have God possess it. And so here you find this word, no faithfulness, no love, no knowledge of God. You find that in verse 1 of chapter 4. All is swearing, all is lying, all is killing, all is stealing, all is adultery. 
When you have not got one thing, the other follows. Negatively, if you haven't got faithfulness to God and knowledge of God and a love, this has said to God, then on the other side, there is a demoralizing of the people, a demoralizing of character. Always, always. The two go together. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin brings about its downfall. So these two things go together. Hosea's seen it. He's seen it. With Gomer, there was no love. There was no truth. And so there came the demoralization. <coughs> she didn't think it wrong to have affairs. She didn't think it wrong to deceive him. She didn't think she was doing anything really wicked to take everything that he gave and to use it for something else, to prostitute its use. Oh no, she didn't think there was anything wrong. And so you come to these terrible, these terrible scriptures about the spirit of harlotry. You'll find it in chapter 4 and verse 12 and 5 and verse 4. I've underlined in here, every time the word harlotry comes, it comes with a sickening uh, shortness of space. Harlotry, the spirit of harlotry. But this is the character of sin, the spirit of harlotry. Now, what is a harlotry? It is the, the inability to be faithful. The inability to be faithful. An unbelievable capacity to give yourself to anyone for pleasure. The spirit of harlotry. The spirit of harlotry. And this, says Hosea, is the character of sin. It's no good you just whipping the sinner. The thing's inside. It's a spirit of harlotry. It's no good whipping Goma. It won't cure her. She has a spirit of harlotry inside. And so he goes on to this verse, verse 17, chapter 4. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Goma is joined to her lovers. I must leave her. I can't do anything. When you come to the next section, which is the biggest, from 5, 8 to chapter 10, verse 15, I have entitled it, The Anger of the Lord's Love. Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? This is the great cry of the Lord again. Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? And uh, I have called it the judgment of sin. In this particular section, we have this question of God. You see, I'm, I'm no doubt about it at all that, that, that Hosea had asked himself this question many a time about Goma. He'd probably gone alone and thought when he saw it all happening, what shall I do unto her? What shall I do with her? I, I'm powerless to do anything with her. She's captured by someone else. I can see it in her eyes. What can I do? How can I react? What measures can I take? And through it all, Hosea came to understand the heart of God in his question, Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? I love you so much. I won you in such a wonderful way. I betrothed you to myself. I tried to change you and transform you. Tried in all my dealings, out of pure love, to bring you to a place where you will be happy, really happy, in a real way. And yet... You have a spirit of harlotry. I can't do it. What shall I do? This is a question God asks. And we find in this chapter 
a very simple principle. Sin leads to judgment, which in grace leads to restoration. He speaks of three things, which maybe as Christians we don't like, but it's true. What shall I do unto thee, Ephraim? Our Lord says, sin leads to judgment, but because you are my own, in grace, judgment will lead to restoration. This is so in the Christian life. How does he explain it? Well, look at some of the lovely homely illustrations he uses. Chapter 5, verse 12, the moth and dry rot. Then, verse 14, chapter 5, the young lion. And then, 5.18, God's withdrawal. I will withdraw and go to my place until they acknowledge my sin. Now, why does he use the moth? Well, have you ever seen the moth working? You don't know anything about it, do you? You just see a little thing fly across. And one day when you go to get out a woolen garment, there's a great hole and uh, it's all gone. The moth has been silently at work. Mr. Haller was one day next door playing the piano and suddenly the piano just slid through the floor and so did he. It was dry rot underneath, had eaten away the rafters and he went quietly, rather like a cinema organ, down through the floor. <laughs> he hadn't heard the dry rot working, he hadn't seen the dry rot working. Here was a silent working, the moth and dry rot. Now the young lion is entirely different, absolutely different. The young lion doesn't work silently. Anyone can hear a young lion. You only go to London Zoo and listen to the lion chewing a bit of meat and imagine what it would be like if it attacked you in the bush. No, the lion isn't silent. And then finally, it says, God says, I will withdraw myself. Here you have three stages of judgment. First, silent, quiet, working of judgment. Then, outward and sudden judgment. And finally, God turning his back on it all. I have no doubt about it that this again reflects Hosea's uh, reactions to Goma. I expect he tried again and again to deal with her on this thing quietly first. Very quietly, in little ways, just tried to discipline her, tried to check her, but it was no good. Then probably he dealt more firmly. No good. Now he's got to leave her alone. Ephraim was joined to Hylians. Let her He's got to withdraw, and he's got to leave her. When you go on from this, you get a description of Israel. He, the Lord says, their love is like an early mist. Well, you know what an early mist is. One moment it's there, next minute it's gone. Your love, he says, is like an early mist, a morning cloud. Morning cloud in the Middle East is a thing that goes in an instant. We used to see it sometimes, on and I, we used to see it now and again, just in the morning for perhaps half an hour, just like a little fog, and it's gone, and that was the finish of that. The dew, your love is like the dew. You see all the life in the desert lives on the dew, the early morning dew, but it's gone in an instant, and that's the end of it. See, the Lord says, your love's like dew. It's there for an instant and gone. It's like a mist. It's just as temporary as a mist. And then he goes on, he says, your love is like, you, Israel, you're like a cake unturned, which just simply means that you're all cooked on one side and all uncooked on the other. Baked on one side to a cinder, and the other side's hardly cooked at all. That's if you want to look at it, if you want to look at it later, is chapter 7 and verse 8. And then he says, Israel, you're like a silly dove. Have you ever seen a dove? Uh, a, a, a dove, he says, silly and senseless. And if you've ever seen a dove that doesn't know what to do, you know exactly what the prophet meant. 
one of those doves that comes down and goes up and then flutters over here, flutters over there. And if it sees anything just so silly, it doesn't seem to know quite what action to take. This is the description of Israel. Then he describes their sins, and there's a description of judgment. It's the anger of the Lord, the firmness of love. Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? What shall I do unto thee? When you come to this next section from chapter 11, uh, verse 1 to the end of chapter 13, 11, 12, and 13, these three chapters, you have the cry of anguish from the Lord's heart. Ephraim, how shall I give thee up? This is the appeal and remonstration of love. The appeal and remonstration of love. I have called it here the dilemma of the Lord. The dilemma of the Lord. You see, the Lord has said, Ephraim's joined to idols. Let him alone. And we can't do anything about it. Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? Judgment is the only answer. But now he has to stand back. Now he comes to a place. It's the dilemma of God. He's found out he loves Ephraim too deeply to give him up. Ephraim, how shall I give thee up? Do you not think this is the reflection of Hosea's experience? Do you not think that there were many people who said to Hosea, you know Hosea, in Deuteronomy 24, verse so, 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 it says you can divorce your wife. And you know you've got the absolute case. I have no doubt that when people saw poor Hosea, lonely, very lonely man, very unhappy perhaps at times, sense of desolation, people came and said, look here, you can divorce the woman. Everyone else divorcing their wives, most common thing in the air. You divorce her. But you see, Hosea loved her. And there was a something in his heart that said, how can I give thee up, Goma? How can I give thee up? I can't do it. I would like to do it. Because my bride is hurt. I would like to give you up. I would like to take action against you. But I can't do it. And so you had the cry of anguish from the Lord's heart, or the dilemma of the Lord. It is the appeal and remonstration of love. If you look through these chapters, you'll find very simply, their beginning and growth is all of God's love. It doesn't matter where they began or how far they went. It was all of God's love, he says, if you read carefully that chapter 11. But God finds an answer to his question, how shall I give thee up? He says that in mercy... He will judge them. Now that's a strange thought, isn't it? But it's a very beautiful one. Mercy and judgment. I think it's in one of Mrs. Cousin's wonderful hymns based on Samuel Rutherford that she speaks (coughs) of mercy being woven with judgment. You see here, there's a wonderful thought that, that he's going to find his way out through chastening them. But it's going to be in mercy. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How can I get you by my side because you want to be? Not by whipping you. Not by hurling threats at you. But by letting you go. Just letting that be the judgment. And in mercy, in the end, bringing you back. Now here you come to one of the loveliest things of all in this little book. It is this. The prophet remembers the lesson of Jacob. And he says in the most wonderful way, if you read it, in chapter 12 from verse 3 onwards. He says, do you remember Jacob? And if that was all he needed to say, because Jacob was a twister, 
as you know his name meant twister, supplanter, deceiver. That's all he had to say. Do you remember Jacob? And then he goes on to the story of Jacob. He's as if he's saying to Israel, the Lord saying to Israel, do you remember your father Jacob? Do you remember what, a kind, what kind of man he was? Do you remember what he did? Do you know he strove with me? He strove with the angel of the Lord. And I changed him. This is the answer the Lord says. How shall I get the answer? Oh, Ephraim, Israel, strive with me. Strive with me. Understand what you are, but don't go back. You may find you can't love me, but strive, I'll change you. The answer is in Jacob. He strove with me. Is that a word of comfort to anyone? You know your nature or anything like Jacob. Don't give up. Take hold of the Lord. Be like Jacob. And God will break you in judgment, but in mercy he will make you an Israel. He will touch your thigh so that you, you limp for the rest of your days. But in mercy, he will be the Israel of God, a prince with God and a prince with men and a builder of the house of God. If you look in chapter 13, verse 4 and verse 14, you find the Lord as saviour and deliverer. He says, I am the Lord, there is n n none else, and besides me there is no saviour. Here is the Lord's cry. Answer. How shall I give thee up, Israel? How shall I give thee up? I can't give thee up. I will judge you in righteousness. But, but, I am your saviour. I will judge you as saviour. And I will bring you through as a deliverer. If you read in the, um, most of the versions, the American Standard Version, Knox's Version, the Authorized Version, J. and Darby's Version, the English Revision, uh, you get a better translation than the American Revised Standard Version. And this is one thing that I don't think is good. This wonderful scripture, Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? I will be your destruction. That's the answer of the Lord. How shall I get thee up? Something like death has got hold of you. But I will destroy death itself from the grave. I will not turn away. It says, uh, repentance is hid from mine eyes. Which just simply means the Lord's not going to change his mind about it. I think that's a much better rendering than the others. And so finally, and lastly, we come to the last tiny section of the book. Just one chapter. Nine verses, the vindication of the Lord's faithfulness. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do with idols? This is the vindication of the Lord. See how he's gone from Ephraim is joined to idols. Now it is, Ephraim shall say, what have I to do with idols? What's happened? <laughs> There's a big change. What's happened? Something has changed within the very character of being of Israel, so that they've come to the place where the spirit of harlotry is out. No more idols. And it won't be the Lord saying to Israel, Israel, you're not going to have any more, thou shalt not. No. It will be Ephraim or Israel. Ephraim is just a word used throughout the scripture for Israel. It's the biggest tribe of Israel, largest tribe. It just means that Israel herself will say, what have I to do with idols? You don't have to have the first commandment or the second commandment. 
We don't need it. Ephraim says, I don't want to have anything to do with idols. That's the triumph of love. It is the vindication of the Lord's person. He has, from the beginning, refused himself to contradict his pledge, that covenant relationship. And he has stuck by her side right the way through. Although she's gone, he's let her go, she's learned her lesson, and now he says, I will love them freely. I will heal their backsliding. I will be like dew unto Israel. He shall blossom as the lily. His scent shall go forth like Lebanon. And all these other wonderful things about the Lord. Uh, what he's going to do to Israel. You see, the most wonderful thing has happened. Israel has returned. And they have said, in thee. That's all. In thee. I love that little word when they say, in thee the fatherless will find mercy. But it's wonderful because it, it symbolizes a spirit now. In thee. That's all. We've come back. Where did Hosea learn this? This chapter 14. You know what, what chapter it corresponds to? It corresponds to chapter 3. Go and buy a woman loved by her lovers. You see, this chapter 14 corresponds to that. The Lord has reclaimed uh, Israel. She has been wonderfully brought out now. I don't suppose you could recognize much about her now. She's broken. She's lost everything. She's gone through the mill of her own choosing. She's come out with nothing. But you see, the Lord now is going to be everything. Oh, it's all right. She might be a physical wreck. She might be a mental wreck. But thank God she's not a spiritual wreck. Now the Lord is going to start to begin and begin a work of restoration and reconstruction. And she, in the end, will be, I believe, spiritually more beautiful than she ever was before. You see, the Lord's after spiritual values and a spiritual character. And the Lord has loved Israel as, as Hosea loved Gomer into this love relationship with himself. I expect in the end, Gomer really loved Hosea as she never loved him before. She understood in the end that his was a love that was worth the whole world, the weight of the world in gold. That was the kind of love that's hard to find uh, in the world. She realized in the end that his love was worth having. And you know, you and I, we may not put a lot of store at present, except in a rather wrong way, upon the love of God and the mercy of God. We may, might rather like that scripture that grace abounds, uh, that when where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. It gives us a nice little feeling that we can go on sinning. But, you know, um, there'll come a day when you and I will recognize the love of God for what it is and will recognize the dealings of God with us for what they mean. We will understand that all this that we think of as sacrifice and denial restriction and limitation is nothing of the kind. It's just simply to rid us and 
purge us of the very things that will destroy in the end our own happiness and joy and bring us into the only kind of joy which is lasting and the only kind of peace which is lasting and keep us in a relationship which is forever and ever. So what is the message of Hosea? The most wonderful message in the Bible, I think, is simply that God really has committed himself in love to us and will not let us go. Will not let us go. Whatever might be in us and whatever's got to come out and whatever's got to be dealt with, he will finally, in the end, have us beside him as those that want to be beside him because we love him. He will have loved us into that relationship. <coughs> we just pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank thee together for all thy grace and thy love. And we pray together that thou wilt make us more and more aware of what it means to have been betrothed to thee. Lord, wilt thou reveal to us something of the nature and the meaning of thy mercy and thy love for us. And may we be those, Lord, who not only appreciate it, but experience it deep, more deeply than ever before. Lord, we thank thee for what thou art, and we just commit ourselves wholly now to thee. In the name of God.